Welcome to the Kanoi Church Podcast. We're glad that you're interested in connecting through this teaching time. If you'd like to connect further, feel free to reach out to us through our website, kanoichurch.org. For now, enjoy this teaching from Kanoi Church, where our mission is to lead people into a growing relationship with Jesus Christ. Thank you, guys. We're going to go into our message time now, so let me just say a word of prayer over our message. Father God, thank you so much for the fact that we can come together this morning. I just pray that my words would be your words, and that you go before us in this lesson. In your name, amen. All right, well, we are continuing our series. Even though we're not meeting in person, we felt that the best thing we could do was just continue in our series on Abraham. So if this is the first time you're tuning in with us, then you are coming in at the very end of our series on Abraham. It's a 12-week long series because there's 12 chapters in Scripture on the life of Abraham. And we're in chapter 11, or we're in the 11th chapter this morning. We have spent 12 whole weeks journeying with Abraham when we're done with this next week. We began with his call when God called Abraham, and we are going to end with his death next week. Last week, we talked about the birth of Isaac, Abraham's second son, and the son of promise. Abraham's first son, Ishmael, and his mother, Hagar, were forced to leave the community. Abraham divorced Hagar, they left the community, and that was pretty painful. But we went ahead and we went to Galatians 4 last week and we looked over the figurative meaning of the story. Paul tells us that the figurative meaning of the story is that you and I are children of promise. And so we said children of promise are focused on Jesus, and focusing on Jesus means to love God and love others. So this morning, we are going to be in Genesis chapter 22, so I'm going to encourage you to open your Bibles or however you want to follow along this morning. Um, Before we go to the scripture, I want to give you guys a little bit of background information that I think is going to be very helpful. And so the first question I have for you is, have you ever heard of Marduk? Marduk. Marduk is not the name of a great dame that gets in trouble in a Sunday morning comic strip. Uh, Marduk is actually a false god in the ancient world, and in the time of, of um, the early, early days of biblical history, the tale of Marduk's creation story would have been very well known. So I'm gonna tell you the story of Marduk's creation story. And it starts like this, in the beginning, which sounds really similar to the story that we know, but that's about the last time it's the same. In the beginning, there's a swirling mass of chaos floating. And that swirling mass of chaos divides into two beings. One being is a God of sweet water, and one is a God of bitter water. And these two water beings, these two water gods, they give birth to what is known as the younger gods. But the God of sweet water is kind of like an old man who gets cranky, and he doesn't like all of the noise that the younger gods create. So the God of sweet water decides he's gonna kill all the younger gods. He makes a plan. But before he can enact that plan, he is killed. And when he is killed, a great battle among all these gods erupts. And out of all of these gods, there's a champion god that emerges whose name is Marduk. And Marduk kills the bitter water god. And out of the bitter water god's corpse, out of her eyes come the Tigris and the Euphrates rivers. And out of her body, Marduk creates the heavens and the earth. And then Marduk says, I'm going to do an investigation. Who started this great battle? And so he goes and he finds the younger God who started this great battle, and he kills him. And from the blood of that God, 
Marduk creates mankind. So in the time of the creation story of Yahweh, we find that there's already a creation story that exists, and that creation story is grounded in violence, terrible violence and war. And so can you understand why a biblical creation story would be such a big deal and such good news to the world? If the world had bought into that the, the entire world, the heavens and the earth, were created out of violence, that mankind was created out of bloodshed, then to learn about a God who creatively creates the heavens and the earth, who builds a garden, who cultivates a garden, who places plants and animals exactly where he wants them, who then out of dust shapes mankind out of his image. How refreshing would it be to hear about that God and also how countercultural. I mean, from the very beginning, God has to reveal himself in a way that pushes back against the status quo constantly. If you would think of a missionary entering into another culture and that missionary wants to talk about God and Jesus, they have to encounter and deal with all of the preconceived conceptions and notions about what gods do in that culture. Well, God is like a great missionary. And so when he enters into this world, into relationship with mankind, he has to deal with all of their preconceived notions about what gods do. And so suddenly, right at the very beginning, we begin to understand that our God isn't a God of massive violence that the world's created out of bloodshed and dead bodies. Our God lovingly, carefully, painstakingly, creatively makes a garden and invites mankind into relationship with him. When we understand what God's saying, we understand what scripture is saying, it will push back against the status quo, even now, here and today. And so I tell you the story of, of Marduk because I want to tell you the story of Molech. Have you ever heard of Molech? Molech is also a false god of ancient times, and he was the false god in a region called Cana. And this is the area where Abraham lived. So all of the people that Abraham gathers to himself that become a part of his family, that become a part of his tribe, these are people who have already had interactions with gods in their life. They have an understanding of what religion is like, and Molech is a very, very common god. Now here's the thing. One of the biggest things about Molech is that he requires child sacrifice. It's a big deal. And the bigger the thing you want, the bigger the thing you want to pray for, the greater the sacrifice must be. And so sometimes, often unfortunately, that is your child. Now Molech appears in our scriptures several times in several places. We find him mentioned in Leviticus, Ezekiel, uh, 2 Samuel, Jeremiah. He's all over. He's even been called by another name, Baal. Molech is often thought of as a great bronze calf. He's a god with a calf or a bull head, and he's bronze. So you've probably heard of Baal before. Well, as Abraham is the promised one, as Abraham is the, or the chosen one, and he becomes the father of God's chosen people, and they spread the word about who this God is, this Yahweh, this God most high, they have to engage and encounter people who already have preconceived notions about who the gods are and what the gods require. So a lot of the people in Abraham's family probably understand that gods at some point require child sacrifice. And so that's part of the background that we need when we go into this chapter today is that child sacrifice is very common, but God's entering into it in order to change something. So let's go to Genesis 22, and we'll start with verse one. It says this, sometime later, God tested Abraham. He said to him, Abraham, here I am, he replied. And we'll pause there. First things first, we know from the very beginning that this is a test. In the first verse here, it says, sometime later, God tested Abraham. So whatever follows in this chapter is a test. 
And now the way that Abraham responds is worth mentioning because the way he responds becomes a theme throughout this chapter. He says, here I am, which is a, a Hebrew word, hene. And it literally translated, it means see me. And so I want you to just think for a moment about maybe the relationship that you're in, maybe with your spouse or your boyfriend or your girlfriend. I want you to think about someone's marriage whom you respect a lot, and I want you to think about what it means to be seen by another person. If you're in that relationship, can the other person in the relationship say, you see me, you get me, you understand me, you see me. When Abraham says, here I am, he's saying, see me, see me, God, you see me. There's this reoccurring sight theme in this chapter. And in fact, hene is a word used again and again. We'll see it coming up. Verse two, then God said, take your son, your only son whom you love, Isaac, and go to the region of Moriah. Sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on a mountain, I will show you. We're gonna pause there again because I feel like we just have to say, Oh, God, we have been waiting. We said last week we waited 25 years. We waited 10 chapters to finally meet this promised son. God's been promising again and again and again. He's going to make Abraham into a great nation. Finally, the son is born. And then as soon as the son's born, God's requiring that Abraham goes and sacrifices him. And so we have to start out saying, God, how could you? Why would you? The other thing we'll mention is Mount Moriah. And we're going to mention it not because it's super important, but because it's going to come up later in our gospel section. We don't know a lot about Mount Moriah. In fact, the only other time it comes up in Scripture is in 2 Chronicles when it talks about Solomon building the temple of God, the temple of the Lord, just outside of Jerusalem, okay, on Mount Moriah, which means that the place that Abraham is told to travel is a mountain or a mount or a hill just outside of Jerusalem. And we'll talk more about that later. I always wonder, does Abraham know this is a test? You know, when we read the scripture, the very first thing we see is that God is testing Abraham. But does Abraham know? Like, what must be going through Abraham's mind as God comes to him and says, hey, that promised son that I've been, you've been waiting for and waiting for and waiting for, here he is, but now I want you to go and kill him. What's he gonna say? Could he say, God, no. You would never require this. I know you too well, God. You'd never require this, no. Would he pass the test if he said that? Could he be thinking, okay, God, I'm gonna trust you and I'm gonna trust that you're gonna change your mind or we're gonna have a really long conversation like we did about Sodom and Gomorrah and maybe you're gonna just back off a little bit. Could he be thinking, okay, because every other God requires it, so I guess this God does too. In Hebrews 11, we're told that Abraham reasons that even if he were to kill Isaac, God could raise him from the dead. So maybe that's what he's thinking. God could raise him from the dead no matter what happens. So let's keep reading and find out how Abraham responds. Verse three, early the next morning, Abraham got up and loaded his donkey. He took with him two of his servants and his son Isaac. When he had cut enough wood for the burnt offering, he set out for the place God had told him about. On the third day, Abraham looked up and saw the place in the distance. He said to his servants, Stay here with the donkey while I and the boy go over there. We will worship, and then we will come back to you. So we can see that Abraham doesn't put up a fight, right? God tells him what to do. He doesn't fight. He doesn't argue. He doesn't have some long conversation. There's no intercessory prayer. Abraham gets up and goes. And as they near the location, I probably can see this mount or this hill in the distance. 
Uh, not so close that there's no privacy there, but close enough they can see it. Abraham says to the servants, we are going to go worship, and we are going to come back. You guys wait here. Do you see how Abraham must be stuck between two realities right now? There's this reality where God has told him that he has to kill his son. So there's a reality where his son will die. But there's this reality where maybe in the back of his head he's hoping and thinking that, that God's going to show up in this incredible way and that's not going to happen. So he's stuck between faith and between reality. He's stuck in this weird two realities, two worlds. He looks at his servants and he says, we are going and we will come back. That might show us incredible faith. Also, some people say that that is just Abraham lying. And we do know that Abraham does have a bit of a history, a bit of a problem with lying, so it's possible. So let's just, we'll pause for one moment and we'll say, what if he is lying? And we'll use it as a teachable moment. If you are in a situation where you can't tell the truth about something you're planning on doing, you probably shouldn't be doing it. If you're surrounded by people that you care about and who care about you, who love you, and you can't look them in the eye and tell them what you are planning on doing, and you have to lie about it, that should be a good litmus test that you are probably in the wrong. Stop. Rethink whatever you're going to do. Okay? That's a lesson for us to learn if we read it that way. However, I don't like to read it that way. Here's what I'd like to think. I'd like to bring that seeing theme back in here. We know that when God calls out to Abraham, he says, see me, see me. And we know that Abraham has seen God in so many ways, so many shapes, and so many forms. God has shown up so consistently over these last number of years. I want to believe that all of that seeing creates a sense of knowing and trust, that there's sort of a mutual trust between Abraham and God, that Abraham's probably thinking something like, I don't know how God is going to work this out, but I trust, even if I don't like it, God's going to work it out. And that should also be a lesson for us. No matter what we're going through, no matter what's going on in your life right now, let's just say right now with the coronavirus, I don't know how God is going to work this out. He may not work it out like I want him to, but I trust he's going to work it out. How about when you're in the hospital? How about when you're holding that loved one's hand? I don't know how God's gonna work this out. He may not like how, I'm gonna, how he's gonna work it out, but I trust he's going to work it out. Let's pick it up in verse six. Abraham took the wood for the burnt offering and placed it on his son Isaac. And he himself carried the fire and the knife. As the two of them went on together, Isaac spoke up and said to his father Abraham, Father, yes, my son, Abraham replied. The fire and the wood are here, Isaac said, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Abraham answered, God himself will provide the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. And the two of them went on together. We'll pause because this to me seems like the perfect spot to talk a little bit about how old Isaac is. When we read this story, and I'll speak for myself, when I read this story, the picture that I create in my head is sort of like Abraham dragging a nine-year-old with him everywhere he goes. And when we were talking last week, we said that we also kind of have a picture in our head of, of when Ishmael is mocking Isaac, that we have these two similar aged boys in that picture in our head. But the reality of the situation is that Isaac is probably two or three when he's being mocked by a 16-year-old Ishmael. So there's quite an age difference. Again, our perception of age is a little bit off 
when we start this chapter, we have context clues, like in the very beginning it says, sometime later, which is a transitionary statement that tells us that some time has passed. We also know that Isaac has the ability to, to understand how sacrifices work, the proper method. He's asking his father, okay, we got the knife, got the fire, got the wood, where's the ram? Where, where's the goat? Where's the sheep? Where's the lamb? He understands what's supposed to be present and what's not because he's probably old enough that he's made some of these sacrifices himself. We also know that Isaac has the ability to carry the firewood. Abraham's not carrying all the firewood. He's loaded it onto Isaac's back and he's the one carrying it everywhere. Isaac has also just made a three or four day journey in the wilderness with everyone else. He's gotta be old enough to take care of himself. So in reality, scholars suggest that, that Isaac is probably between his mid-20s and his mid-30s. Mid-20s and mid-30s. So this isn't a child. There are some rabbis and some midrashes that suggest that he's actually 33 years old. 33. And I'll let you make the connection. If you don't, I'll make it later. Isaac is born when Abraham is 100, which means that in this situation, Abraham is 125 to 135 years old. Abraham dies when he's 175. So we have to repicture this story in our head. It's not an old man dragging a nine-year-old around. It's a 30-year-old man helping an aging father climb a mountain to make a sacrifice that he's only beginning to understand while they're on the journey of what's going to happen. Let's pick it up in verse nine. When they reached the place God had told him about, Abraham built an altar there and arranged the wood on it. He bound his son Isaac and laid him on the altar, on top of the wood. Then he reached out his hand and took the knife to slay his son. But the angel of the Lord called out from heaven, Abraham, Abraham, here I am, he replied. We'll pause. Abraham bound Isaac. And when you picture it in the old way, you picture an old man struggling to hold down a nine-year-old to bind him up. But if you picture it in the new way, where Isaac is much older, what we see is Isaac is willing to let his father bind him. How hard must that be? What 130-year-old could force a 30-year-old to do anything? Imagine the oldest person in your life trying to force, physically force, a 30-year-old man to get on an altar and be tied up. That's unrealistic. But when we picture it in this new way with an older Isaac, we understand that Isaac had to be willing to let his father bind him. Isaac probably had to help his father get him onto the altar after they build it together. Think about the willingness that Isaac is portraying here. And then... When this is all ready to happen, when, when Abraham has raised the knife high or put the knife to, his, to Isaac's throat, a voice calls out, Abraham, Abraham, stop. And how does Abraham respond? Hineh, see me, here I am. God, see me, see me with this knife raised, see me with my son on this altar, see me, God, see what I am willing to do, see how much faith I have, see how I will follow you, see how much I fear you, God. Verse 12, the angel says, do not lay a hand on the boy, do not do anything to him. Now I know that you fear God because you have not withheld from me your son, your only son. Abraham looked up, and there in the thicket he saw a ram caught by its horns. He went over and took the ram 
and sacrificed it as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called that place, the Lord will provide. And to this day, it is said, on the mountain of the Lord, it will be provided. And we'll pause there again. I need you to understand that this passage of scripture or, or this story in this passage of scripture, what happened here, this event, forever abolishes the need for child sacrifice. In a world where child sacrifice was common, in a world where the gods required this all the time, God enters into this terrible tradition. He enters in by saying, Abraham, take your son, your only son whom you love so much, and sacrifice him. But God makes it clear that he's not that God. God makes it clear that he doesn't require child sacrifice. And here's the key. God doesn't teach this on the world stage. There, there isn't all these cameras that are going to live stream this event all over the world. He takes one man that he has chosen and his son to a mountain where they're alone and they have this event happen. And it is up to Abraham to bring this back to God's chosen people and for God's chosen people to share with the world that this God doesn't require the sort of sacrifice that you're used to. This God doesn't require you to sacrifice your children. Your children will not die when you follow this God. He's communicating something absolutely incredible, and that's a lesson to all of us because it is our job to also communicate God's lessons to this world. The lessons don't get communicated. The, the word doesn't get shared unless we're willing to come down from the mountain and share it. This testing is so interesting. Again, this whole thing's a test. Who learns something in this test? God. It says, now I know that you fear God. Now I know that you fear God. And the word here for fear, it's fear. It's not respect. Like sometimes we think fear and respect are interchangeable in scripture. The word here is fear. And so we've, we've walked with Abraham all the way through from the time that God called him up to this point, and we've seen Abraham react to God in a lot of different ways. He's laughed at God. He's fallen over laughing at God. He's followed God. He's gone his own way from God. He's pushed back on God. Maybe in all of that interaction, it was never really made clear whether he feared God or not. Maybe Maybe Abraham could have said to God, I fear you, but it was never shown. And so I think about, I think about Jeff and skydiving. And you know, the guy up here that plays guitar during worship, his name is Jeff, and Jeff loves skydiving. He goes to Maytown all the time and he skydives. And I could go to Jeff and say, Jeff, tell me all about skydiving, man. And he would probably just be like, oh, it's awesome. We get in a plane, we put all our stuff on, our jumpsuit and our gear, we have a helmet, we get our parachute on and we go up in this plane and we just keep going higher and higher and higher until we get up there. And then they open the door and your heart's beating really fast. And then you, you gotta step out on the wing and you hold on and you just wait for them to tell you to jump. And then you jump and there's this moment where your stomach's just like, it's in your, it's in your throat and you're falling and you, you pull the rip cord and then whoosh, you're just floating down and you have the greatest view ever. And he tells me, he would tell me this and then I would go, all right, well, cool, I, I, I know exactly what it's like. I don't have to go now, great. And, and, and Jeff would probably say, no way, man. You gotta still go. You don't really know what it's like. You know what it's like up here, but you don't know what it's like, right? I wanna introduce you to my friend. This is my friend. Um, my children know this as Cardboard Daddy. Um, 
this was a gift from my wife for a birthday a long time ago, and it stays in a closet in our apartment. And sometimes my kids go in there and they get surprised or scared by cardboard daddy standing in this closet. Um, but I want you to consider for a second here, this is cardboard daddy, so he shares the same name as I do, not the cardboard piece, but daddy, right, with my kids. Cardboard daddy is a good representation of me, a little shorter, um, but cardboard daddy can't love my kids. Not really. He can't kiss my kids. If one of them falls down and hurts themselves, he can't hold them. He can't really care about them or care for them. Because cardboard daddy, as much as he looks like me, he's just, he's a really, <laughs> he's a really poor example of me, is he not? Right? He's, well, he's not me. I think the thing that we have to remember is that when we get to know God, when we are seen by God, when we see God, we understand better who he is. And it's so easy for us to say, you know what, I don't need to experience skydiving because I heard all about it. It's so easy for us to get satisfied with some flat image or representation of God and not be willing to find the real thing. But when we're in our time of need, when we're the kid that fell down and skinned our knee, I guarantee you that none of my kids go running the cardboard daddy. They come to the real thing. Why do we tend to be satisfied with a cardboard God when we need the real thing? When we get to know the real thing, we begin to understand what God is doing. We begin to understand who God is. We begin to know that God doesn't require things like child sacrifice. We begin to let God know that we do fear you in all the right ways because we've experienced you. Let's keep reading in verse 15. The angel of the Lord called to Abraham from heaven a second time and said, I swear by myself, declares the Lord, that because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you and make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and as the sand on the seashore. Your descendants will take possession of the cities of their enemies, and through your offspring, all nations on earth will be blessed because you have obeyed me. And I'll just say two things. God is affirming, reaffirming his covenant with Abraham. Everything that just happened, it doesn't change a thing. Whatever the test was, Abraham has passed it. If passing it was the point. But we'll talk more about that later. Verse 19, then Abraham returns to his servants and they set off together for Beersheba and Abraham stayed in Beersheba. We'll stop here again because there's something important here that's hard to talk about. Even as Isaac is older, even as he is a man who willingly allows himself to be sacrificed, who lays down on an altar, who lets himself be tied up, who watches his father put a knife to his throat feels the blade there, that doesn't come without cost, does it? There's a relational cost here. God enters into this system of child sacrifice and he ends it. And he probably saves thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands of children from being sacrificed in the future because this people group has a new message for the world. But this experience comes with a relational cost between Abraham and Isaac. We watch here that says Abraham returned to his servants. It doesn't say Abraham and Isaac. Isaac is somewhere left behind 
Abraham returns alone. And then Abraham returns home alone. There's a cost to this whole thing. And that's hard for us to admit. Let's keep reading here. Verse 20, we'll read it to the end. Sometime later, Abraham was told, Milcah is also a mother. She has borne sons to your brother Nahor, Uz the firstborn, Booz his brother, Kemuel the father of Aram, Kased, Hazo, Pildash, Jidlaf, Bethuel. Bethuel became the father of Rebekah. Milcah bore these eight sons to Abraham's brother Nahor. His concubine, whose name was Ruma, also had sons, Teba, Gaham, Tehash, and Makkah. All of those names, geez. Um, probably butchered all of them. If you are familiar with the story of, of Isaac, which would be the next generation of the story we've been studying, then there might be a single name in that list that sticks out to you, and that name should be Rebecca. Rebecca becomes Isaac's wife. And what we learn here is, well, this is how Rebecca makes her entrance into the story, essentially, but we learn that Rebecca is a relative of, of Abraham. Um, Abraham's brother, son, is the father of Rebecca. So I looked up a family chart online, which means that Rebecca is Abraham's grandniece, I think, and Rebecca is Isaac's first cousin once removed, I think. <laughs> All that to say, Rebecca shows up in the story finally. All right, we're gonna go into our grow section. So remember, in this series, we've had our go section where we go and read the scripture. We have our grow section where we say, what from this story pushes us to grow? And then we have our gospel section where we say, what's the good news in this story? So we're in our grow section, and we wanna talk, talk about testing, testing. This whole passage, this whole story is rooted in that first verse where it says, God tested Abraham. And so often when we read this story or talk about this story, the question that we ask is, does God still test us? Does God still test us today? And the answer is sure, absolutely. Uh, James says, consider it pure joy when you go through trials of many kinds. Peter says, remain steadfast when you are tested. Paul says, we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. James says, the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. So yeah, God still tests us. But God doesn't tempt us. Temptation is something that comes from the evil one. Temptation is something that the entire point is to ruin you. So I want you to just picture Jesus in the wilderness when Satan comes to him. What is Satan doing every time he approaches Jesus? He's trying to get Jesus to compromise himself, to compromise his beliefs, to compromise his relationship with God. Temptation is always trying to ruin. Testing gives you a chance to learn, and it gives you a chance to live into something better. Testing isn't designed to make you fail, and I know that's hard for us to understand, especially with our Western mind, mind frame of what we see testing to be. If we go back and we look at the way that Jesus interacted with his disciples, if we look at the way rabbis interact with their disciples, testing is different. When a rabbi trains his disciples, he asks questions. They have whole conversations in questions. Question, 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 question. And that would seem very much to you and I like it's a test. And you and I would struggle because we'd think, well, what if I get one of these questions wrong? But see, when a rabbi chooses a disciple, the rabbi makes a commitment to that disciple. You aren't going to get a question wrong and suddenly not be a disciple. The rabbi is committed to walking with you when you're correct 
and when you're incorrect, when you're succeeding, and when you're failing. You don't get kicked to the curb because you get something wrong. Think about the apostle Peter. Peter is a great example of a guy who gets some big things right and some big things really wrong. Consider James and John, who when there's a village of Samaritans that won't listen to them, what do they want to do? Rain fire down on them. And God says, you don't even know what spirit you're from. Think about his disciples when they encounter a blind man sitting outside the temple gates. They say, why is he blind? Because he sinned or his parents sinned. And Jesus says, you're wrong. That's not the way this whole thing works. Jesus doesn't kick his disciples out because they mess up or because they get something wrong. Think about Judas. It's hard for me to imagine a disciple that went or strayed further than Judas. Jesus doesn't know what Judas is going to do and not wash his feet at the Last Supper. Jesus washes the feet of Judas knowing what Judas is about to do. When they get ready to pass the cup, Jesus says to Judas, go now and do what you've already done in your heart. He doesn't strip him of being a disciple before he tells him to go. When Judas leaves the room, he's still a disciple of Jesus. Just because we get it wrong doesn't mean we get kicked out. In our Western world, we understand that testing is about weeding people out. We have classes in school. If you fail enough classes, or if, and they fail enough tests, you fail a class. If you fail enough classes, you fail out of school, and you get kicked out. I mean, that's the term we have, right? You're kicked out. If you go to take your driver's test and you, you go to the driver's license center and you sit down in the car with your instructor, you start driving, and as you're leaving the parking lot, you forget to put your turn signal on, what does he tell you? Pull it over. You're done. That's not the point of testing. Testing is, is a lot more like, um, I don't know what it's called right now, but when I was in high school, it was called behind the wheel. And so you could sign up for behind the wheel where you would actually go get in a car with a driving instructor and they would take you out for an hour or two hours you drive around. And in that two hours you're driving around, if you forget to put your turn signal on, the instructor doesn't pull the car over and kick you out on the curb. The instructor reminds you, hey, you forgot to put your turn signal on. Hey, do you remember why it's important to put your turn signal on? Let me tell you why it's important. And the instructor is there to remind you the whole way through. And so next time that you forget to put it on again, he reminds you again, and the next time, again. And what he's doing is he's preparing you for the day that you're going to take that driver's exam, right? That's the sort of trials and testing that we see wrapped up in scripture. It's not kicking you to the curb. It's preparing you for something. They're meant to grow you. They're meant to shape you. They're meant to create an image of you that looks so much more like God than it looks like you. And unfortunately, so many of us end up walking through this life waiting for the next shoe to drop, the next trial, the next tribulation, the next test to come. We're filled with anxiety and fear because we think if we get it wrong, if we say the wrong thing, then we're gonna get kicked to the curb. But that is not the God we serve. God has entered into this to show us something different. That is not the kind of testing that exists. So we need to stop being people that are wrapped up in fear and anxiety about doing the wrong thing. Do the right thing, but do your best. That's what we're being asked to do. Let's go into our gospel section. What is the point of the gospel section? Is the point of the gospel section is for us to find the good news in this passage, right? The gospel isn't just four books at the beginning of the New Testament. The gospel literally means good news. So when we look at this passage of scripture, any passage of scripture, we can find good news. What's the good news this morning? Well, this is easy. So let me remind you of a couple facts from our story. We have Isaac. 
who was a child born of a miracle birth. We have Isaac headed to a place called Mount Moriah, which is a hill just outside of Jerusalem. He's going there, why? To be sacrificed. We have Isaac carrying the wood for the sacrifice on his back as he travels. Prior to the sacrifice, Isaac has this moment that he comes to terms with what's happening where he says, Father, um, where's the ram? He begins to come to terms. He begins to put the pieces together. He begins to see what's going to happen. And what does he do? Continues on. The story repeats the phrase, your son, your only son, several times. God enters into the process of child sacrifice in order to abolish it forever. Those are the facts from our story this morning, but let me remind you of some facts from another story. Another child born of a miracle birth. His name is Jesus. Jesus was crucified on a hill just outside of Jerusalem named Golgotha. On his way to that hill, Jesus carried the wood for that sacrifice, the cross, on his back. Jesus has a moment prior to the sacrifice where all the pieces fall into place, where he begins to put it together, and he says, Father, take this cup from me, but not my will, yours be done. And with willingness, he moves forward. We're all familiar with the Apostle John's words, in John 3:16, God sent his one and only son. And what we see as an overarching theme in the story of Jesus is God entering into a sacrificial system to end it, to abolish it forever. It's actually pretty easy for us to find the gospel in this story, to find the good news in the story, because Jesus and Isaac, boy, they do look a lot alike, don't they? That's why some of the rabbis tell stories that Isaac was 33 years old, because so was Jesus. We see the similarities between Isaac and Jesus easily, but let's push just a little bit harder here before we close. Think of the story of Isaac and Abraham, and now I want you to consider for yourself some of the shalom that you've broken, some of the peace that you've broken, the sin that we have committed ourselves to, Consider the brokenness in our own lives. Romans says, for the wages of sin is death. Sin pays us back in a wage called death. It's you and I on the altar. It's you and I on the altar, bound up. We are bound up in our sin. We are bound up in death. It's you and I that is there. We are Isaac. Isaac is us. And yet the mouthpiece of God, Jesus, shouts out, stop, wait, don't lay a hand. God stops the sacrificial system through love. He enters into the sacrificial system through love and he ends it. God speaks through the apostle John when he says, I love the world so much that I will send my one and my only son and whoever believes in him, they're not gonna perish. They're not gonna die on the altar. They will have eternal life. I'm not sending my son into the world to condemn it. I'm sending my son into the world to save it. God is the great missionary to us. 
God has to actively engage the ideas of religious people. And at one time, it was with Marduk and Molech. But today, it's just understanding that you and I are freed from the altar, that you and I are not stuck in sin, that you and I aren't in bondage to death anymore because God entered into that system of sacrifice and he ended it. He put a stop to it. The good news this morning is that there is freedom from sin. There is freedom from the sacrificial system and you can have it if only you believe in his son. The good news is that the sacrifice is made. It was perfect, something that you could not be. The good news is that God shouts into the darkness, death is over. As we move forward, there is only life. There is only life ahead. Let's pray. Hi, this is Pastor Nick. Thanks for listening. I hope something that you heard today was very helpful. If you want to connect with us further, feel free to check us out on Facebook, Instagram, or our website, kanoichurch.org. Sure, I'm glad we're in this together.